Good morning, listeners. Today on Blind Insights, we have the very, 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 very knowledgeable economist, Stephen Hale, who taught Jaden and Sam. And I'm not going to pick on Stephen as much as I pick on Jaden and Sam, because Stephen knows way more than me, and I may even just listen. It's very nice of you to say that. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. It's a pleasure to have you here. And, and thank you, David, for your introduction. Well, it's great to meet you, and both Tim and David, and I'm looking forward to the chat. Excellent. All right, Stephen, you could talk about so many things, but let's start with things you're really interested in. How about we start with the nature of the Australian economy and what we should all know about what it's like and things we could do potentially to make it even better. That's a good place to start. I suppose I'd like to start off by saying that the way in which most people think the Australian economy should be managed, the consensus for the appropriate way of managing the economy on both sides of politics over the last 25 to 30 years, insofar as it ever worked at all, was unsustainable and is about to break down in the next year or two. At least that's, that's my view, if it hasn't broken down already. And that consensus is that the government aims to balance its budget on average over time. After all, households can't borrow year after year after year and politicians talk as though the government, the federal government, is a household with the same constraints that households have on their finances. So that The government should balance its budget over time and as far as managing the amount of spending in the economy and keeping a lid on inflation and making sure that the inflation rate stays low and stable, that's the job of the Reserve Bank and the Reserve Bank should manage interest rates, put them up a little bit, which they haven't done for a long time now, or put them down a little bit as necessary in order to put the brakes on as far as the economy is concerned when inflation is a problem or to put their foot on the accelerator when there isn't quite enough spending in the economy to make sure that we're close to what they define as full employment without inflation taking off. Now, the reason why that is unsustainable, and for the moment I'm not talking about ecological unsustainability. Not just in economic terms. Yeah, I'm just talking about financial uh, sustainability, is that our economy, when you think about it from a monetary perspective, is a set of what accountants would call balance sheets, assets and debts interlocking. So uh, the private sector's balance sheets interlock the government's balance sheets and evolving over time, always in, in ways which have the potential to be unsustainable and to lead to the development of a more fragile financial system, which is more prone to a severe downturn. And what we've done in Australia, particularly during the years of the Howard government, but actually on average while both sides have been, have been in power, is we've relied on household borrowing in order to power the economy. During the years when Peter Costello was the treasurer, which people on the right claim to be the years of the, the greatest economic management in the history of, of the country, and the Labour Party is sufficiently intimidated by that to implicitly go along with it, or at least to be defensive about it, Australia went from having one of the world's lowest levels of household debt to income compared to other high-income countries to almost the highest. We have the second highest level of household debt to disposable income in Australia now in the world. Only Switzerland has a marginally higher 
amount of household debt than us. Now, under these circumstances, the Reserve Bank can do whatever it likes now if there's not enough demand in the economy, as far as they're concerned, if inflation is below their target range, if unemployment's higher than they would like it to be. Uh, they can cut interest rates all the way down to zero, which they're talking about doing at the moment. They're already the lowest level they've ever been in Australia. And we've got to a point now where households uh, can't take on any debt or, or much more debt than they've already got, regardless of the level of interest rates. Because, of course, when you borrow new money into existence, as households have been doing over the last 25 years, you've then got that debt that you have to pay back. So the reality is okay. the debt level is so high now that just the repayments alone and so so the whole thing now where they measure the housing stresses, you know, you're above one third of your pay on mm. rent or your mortgage. Well, if you combine that with Australian's credit card debt, which I saw the number the other day and it was just, I can't remember it, but it was astronomical and crazy. And the interesting figure was there was something like 20 million new credit cards issued in Australia in the last five years. Well, absolutely. And our, our household debt is, household debt to, to after tax disposable income is approaching 200% now. Wow. Um, only Switzerland is above that and almost no countries have ever been. Why are the Swiss there? I know it's a bit off topic, but it would strike me that they're good at making money and they're good at making things. So how did they get to the point of so much debt as well? They've been living with the same paradigm as us, basically. Okay, so they absorbed the neoliberal model in the same way we did? Yeah, other countries around the world have as much private debt as us, but what's unusual in Australia is we don't have all that much business debt compared to many other countries. In Australia, we literally have... They used to say the Australian economy rode on the sheep's back. It's ridden on the back of household debt for the last two and a half decades. And we've reached a point now where, in my view, not only... Is there nothing that the Reserve Bank can do beyond a very short-term sugar hit, whatever they try to do, to uh, stimulate more spending and support the economy and to prop the property market up? But literally, if the Reserve Bank decided it wanted to create as much inflation as possible, within our legal system, given what the RBA is allowed to do and what is reserved to the federal government and parliament and the budget, there is nothing that the RBA could possibly do to create inflation in Australia now. Because the debt is at such a high level from households that that is the defining factor that is going to affect what we do as consumers and and earners of money? Absolutely. All the RBA is allowed to do is it's allowed to lend to a narrowly defined set of financial institutions. It's allowed to trade in a narrowly defined set of financial assets. It's not allowed to go out and build factories or, <laughs> or make welfare payments. That's the role of the government. So there is nothing that the RBA is legally permitted to do which will work in the long run now because what has, in a sense, worked over the last 25 years is that they've pushed our economy forward on average by cutting interest rates over time, although they sometimes increase them. Uh, and they've done that by encouraging us to take on more debt. And although businesses don't have that much debt, in Australia compared to other countries. Of course, businesses take on debt when they want to invest in additional capacity. And businesses will only invest in additional capacity when they expect that there are households there to buy what they want to sell. (laughs) So that's not going to work either. So you're really down to a thing of you can't rely on business to do anything because we can't spend any more money, which means you need a change in policy settings to both change 
you know, what bits of the economy are being supported by policy to perhaps go into developing things where there's a greater chance for export or for household debt control. Yes, and this is now understood. It's only really this year that I've noticed his uh, discourse changing. But Philip Lowe, the Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, increasingly across this year, not usually when he's on the same platform as a politician, but when he's speaking on his own, has been calling for the government to take on more of the role of promoting full employment and economic development and pointing out that there is very little that the Reserve Bank could do. We can have zero interest rates. The RBA could go out and buy lots and lots of government bonds and some private sector financial assets to do what's called quantitative easing. In other countries, the RBA could even have negative interest rates like there are in places like Sweden and Denmark and the Eurozone and Japan. But we know from the experiences of those other countries that once private debt goes above a certain level, then policy approaches don't work. And that the problem is that we know what does work. And actually, there are some very good things that we could do if only we pursued what does work in our economy. And at the last election, and it's still the case now, the Labour Party haven't, in my opinion, learnt the right lessons from their defeat at the federal election. At the last election, we had the coalition saying that they wanted to pursue government budget surpluses or fiscal surpluses, they call them, into the medium term because they think, under the Howard government, they think that's the way to promote financial stability and, in an economic sense, sustainable prosperity. They're entirely wrong. So they're thinking basically like a little accountant doing the books for a small business. (laughs) Well, yeah, not only them, them, but, of course, Bill Shorten before the election and Anthony Albanese since have reacted to that by promising bigger surpluses. Yeah, but this is the traditional problem of Labour Liberal in this country. If we go back to sort of the Hawke-Keating period, we have a transformation of an economy into a neoliberal model, but we also have the courage to spend money to transform it. Mm. And somewhere along the line, we kept the neoliberal model but lost the ability to believe in ourselves that government should take on debt to make positive change for the good of society. When did that die? When did it die? Economists have, apart from a fairly short period soon after the death of John Maynard Keynes in the late 40s and 1950s, it's been the case really across modern economic history that the dominant school of thought in what we call macroeconomics, studying the whole economy and the role of the government within the economy, has been based on a misconception, which in the case of some people is deliberate misconception, about how modern monetary systems actually work. And maybe I could just take a step. A good way of explaining this is to imagine that we were introducing money into Australia for the first time. And this is not such a silly thing to say because we've got lots of records historically of imperial powers invading countries and introducing money in what previously had been pre-monetary societies. We know how they did it. And there are also cases where countries have gained independence and have introduced their own currency after that. If we were introducing the Australian dollar now, if there was no currency in Australia at the moment and we were moving to a monetary economy for the first time. Imagine I'm the government and you're the private sector. Mm -hmm. Now, if I imagine that I need to collect 
tax revenue before I spend. The currency that I'm going to spend is the Australian dollar. At the moment, there are no Australian dollars in existence, remember. So what you're going to have to do is come to my barter system. And there, there was no barter system. That's another thing which is not... Which okay, is, well, that's very important you bring that in because yeah. historically I would have immediately assumed that there would have been a barter system and what you would have tried to do was put a dollar value on things that I was already trading amongst myself as the private sector. No, well, that's uh, all right. We take another step back. That's a, that's quite interesting. Okay, so we're going into the void, right? We'll, we'll go back. We can go right back to the beginnings of monetary history, if you like, which are more than 5,000 years ago. Uh, most uh, the evidence that we have suggests that money was first developed soon after the development of agriculture and food surpluses and mm-hmm. and early governmental institutions and armies that had to be provisioned for in what is now modern Iraq, more than 5,000, perhaps much more than 5,000 years ago. Having read David Graeber's book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, yeah. I understand the significance of introducing you know, the idea of a debt. I will lend you something of value now and we'll write down on our clay tablet what you owe me back later. And that seems to be critical to this creation of money. That's that a you great create new book. money out of... Oh, I'm glad I wasn't about to get you know, us even further <laughs> off track. Yeah. That, that, that's a great book. Well, one of the things that David explains in that book is that governmental institutions, well, temple communities, mm. were there at the inception of money. And yeah, you had to someone you trust to generate these promissory you know, notes or clay tablets saying, I'm going to lend you this now and you're going to pay back a bit more and this will all work because I'm trusted as the institution or feared if I'm the local, you know, hard man with better spears. Well, a, a couple of points David made was, first of all, before those institutions, there was nothing that we could really regard as money. So uh, ancient communities were genuinely communal as far as mm. necessities of life were concerned. Food was shared. Um, there were ceremonial gifts made to the chief or mm. on the occasion of a, a wedding or there was some form of payment made again, which in, I might be in mats or whatever mm. in the local community was used for this purpose. If if I injured your brother, my family... It was all about building reciprocity and social connection. Absolutely. So gift culture like we still see today in the yes. highlands of New Guinea. Yep. Exactly. And nothing that we could regard from a modern perspective as money was used. People did not trade for basic necessities. So Graeber explains, and uh, it's not just David Graeber, he cites lots of yeah, authoritative people. sources, um, so that you could really say that all archaeologists and anthropologists that have looked into this issue say more or less the same thing which is that um, governments invented money and the earliest form of money was the unit of account, the unit of value, which early governments used to assess the liabilities of people on whom they imposed what we might now call a tax or a tribute or a a fee or a fine. And the earliest form of that uh, in in Graeber's book is a shekel of barley, Mm. which was related to the ration of a soldier in those ancient communities. And Graeber then explains how commodity, money, um, precious metals like gold and silver sort of came into fashion and went out of fashion again several times across monetary history. But token money, what you were talking about uh, before, those clay Mm. tablets, was there right at the very beginning and is 
two or three thousand years older than than the invention of coins for example we've mm-hmm. had money much longer than we've had the technology to invent coins but if we do the whole five thousand years we might be quite a long time a multi-part so podcast we'll step I'll, <laughs> I'll step into david graeber talking about imperial powers introducing money into african countries in the 19th century maybe mm. if we jump to that point then i've invaded your country it, your country was a it had a gift economy, as you were just describing, typically. I want you to work for me, to grow crops for me, to build roads for me, to help me put buildings together and to do all sorts of things. How am I going to do that without actually legally enslaving you? I'm going to force you to pay taxes in my currency, just like I was talking about the Australian dollar before. The issue, of course, is that you don't have any of that currency. At the moment, if we were introducing the Australian dollar now and I expected to tax before I spent, then it would be impossible. I need to spend some of those dollars into to taxation tax them back. before I tax them back again. Indeed, the word revenue in French, I think, is about the return of something which has been spent into circulation in the, in the, in the first place. So if I spend 100 Australian dollars into circulation and I tax $80 back out, then... You could say I've run a deficit of $20. Well, my deficit is your surplus. You now have those $20 that you didn't have before. And if if you want to talk about the government as having a debt or sometimes called the national debt, I don't regard the Australian government's so-called debt as a debt at all, I have to say. Yeah, but like you just said, money is mythical. As long as a government is trusted and we trust what they do and – the value of things is not destroyed. It's nothing to do with trust. It's entirely to do with really? tax. If I have an okay. army and a police force and I force you to pay your taxes in Australian dollars, you have to demand Australian dollars. You have to get some. The only reason why the Australian dollar would lose value over time would be if I wasn't taxing you enough to, to defend its value. So, so gov- and, and if we come to the modern economy, And this is what I'm about to say is factually 100% correct, although it's not widely understood. Every time the federal government in Australia spends a dollar, and they're spending dollars every day, every dollar they spend is a new dollar. It's the birth of a dollar. Every, this is not true of the state government. It's not true of local authorities. No, it can only be the federal one who has control over the ability to produce money. The yep. most important thing that people don't understand about our monetary system is the difference between a currency issuer and a currency user. You and I are currency users. Businesses are currency users. The state government of South Australia is a currency user. If you're a currency user, before you can spend dollars... You've got to get those dollars from somewhere. You either have to run down your past savings or else you've got to earn dollars or else you have to borrow dollars. And if you borrow those dollars, you've got to pay them back in the future. And there's always the risk if you accumulate too much debt of insolvency, of being unable to pay those dollars back and default. If you are a currency issuer, you are in a completely different position. If you're a currency, and this is just pure fact at the moment, this is not a theory, if you're a currency issuer and everybody from Alan Greenspan, if people have heard of him, was a very right-wing Ayn Rand aficionado who for Mm. a long time was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the US, you can find him on the internet saying this. He's very boring. You don't have to, well, (laughs) I'm just making the point, you don't have to be a lefty like me. No, he's very boring. You can be a very far right-wing person 
You just need to understand the monetary system, that's mm. all. There's no monopoly on understanding the monetary system. If you're a currency uh, issuer, every unit of currency you spend is a new unit of currency. So when the government, when the federal government in Australia spends, they create new Australian dollars. And they create Australian dollars, which are for the private sector, what we would call a net financial asset. Or in other words, we've got money and we didn't borrow it. We haven't got to repay it. Once they do that, some of those dollars they take back again, like in the previous story, in taxation. Mm -hmm. Now, the role of taxation, if you're a currency issuer, is not to pay for government spending. The role of taxation, if you're a currency issuer, is to create a demand for the currency in the first place. It doesn't matter about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. There will always be a demand for Australian dollars as long as there is a legal system which forces you to to get Australian dollars to pay your taxes. And there'll be a demand even if you personally don't have to pay the taxes because you'll be able to pass them on to somebody who does have to pay taxes in return for goods and services. The role of taxation in a more modern sense is to limit private sector spending power to create room within the productive capacity of our economy for the government to provide public goods without driving the total spending in the economy beyond its productive capacity. When the government spends more than it raises in taxes, what that does is it not only puts money into our bank accounts, it puts uh, electronic cash into the accounts that our banks and credit unions have at the RBA. Now, the creation of excess reserves in these private bank accounts at the RBA under our current system for managing interest rates makes it very difficult for the RBA to control the cash rate. So in order to withdraw those excess reserves from the system, the government, under the way things are, in which things are managed at the moment, auctions things called treasury bonds that people regard as government debt. The purpose for auctioning those treasury bonds, and the RBA said this when we moved to the current system in 1982, this is not me making it up, the fundamental purpose for issuing those treasury bonds is to withdraw those reserves from the banking system so the banks don't have too much cash, so that the RBA is able to, I won't go into how the RBA does this day to day, but so that the RBA is able to maintain the cash rate at its target level, which is currently 1%. So the government does not tax because it needs your tax money to spend. It taxes to limit inflation. The government does not issue treasury bonds because it needs to borrow your money to spend. It issues treasury bonds to withdraw excess reserves from the banking system to allow the RBA to keep control of the cash rate under the present system for managing interest rates. Once people understand this, the next step is to point out that For 80% of the time since Federation, the federal government in Australia has run a deficit. So we're constantly wasting it all. Now, I have to ask you a question because there's an immediate thing to come to mind here for me. I've got no problem with this idea of being a money issuer. I never knew that what it was called, but in my head I've always understood governments should get on with making the economy go around and making money is the way to do it, i.e. generating money. I didn't know how you describe how to do it, but I understood the concept. So what happens in a country, and I'll use... Zimbabwe as an example, but you use anyone you want to talk about Okay, uh, that makes yeah. money and then that money loses its value. See, I would have before seen that as you get spiralling hyperinflation and the money loses its value because it's not trusted. But what you're saying is it's a question it wasn't effectively taxed and moved around. Uh, not that, that, that's not 
that's not most of the story in Zimbabwe. I'll tell. I'll tell Pick the story. A country that works well for somewhere well, else. Well, no, the Zimbabwe is a great story. Okay, but that's not the story. I'll oh, tell you okay. the story. Well, tell me the story then, because yeah. I want to know. Well, first of all, um, I hadn't quite completed the previous story. Just oh, being sorry. a currency <laughs> issuer. No, it's it's a long, it is a long story. Just being a currency issuer on its own is is not enough to describe the freedom that the Australian Commonwealth government has. We are also a monetary sovereign government. To be a monetary sovereign government, you have to not only issue your own currency, which of course Greece, Spain, Italy don't. They're not monetary sovereigns any more than mm-hmm. the government of South Australia is. You also have to uh, not have an obligation in place to convert that currency into anything that you could run out of at a fixed rate. So if you're in a fixed exchange rate system, you're not a monetary sovereign because you could run out. I mean, if, if, if the rest of the world wants to sell your currency and you want to maintain that fixed exchange rate, you have to buy it using foreign currency reserves. You can't print foreign currency. Uh, and you mustn't have any significant foreign currency denominated debt. So if you're Argentina and you've borrowed huge amounts of US dollars, you're not a monetary sovereign. You've given that monetary sovereignty away, at least temporarily. In the case of Australia, we have full monetary sovereignty. We issue our own currency. We, since 1983, have had a floating exchange rate. And the government has virtually zero foreign currency debt. This is also true of New Zealand. It's true of the US. It's nothing to do with the US dollar being the global reserve currency because it's true of us as well. It's true of Japan. It's nothing to do with Japan being a global net creditor because it's true of us as well. It's true of the UK. It's true of a lot of... What about China? There's China peg, has effective monetary sovereignty. There's a semi-peg. Okay, semi-peg. But they have effective right. monetary sovereignty because as a result of what's been going on over the last 20 years, they've got the world's, although they're not quite as high as they used to be, they've got the world's highest level of foreign exchange reserves by a long way. So, so they can be semi-pegged because they've got the cash there to manage it and no one else has got that much cash lying around. No one else has got as many US dollars lying around except okay. for the US government, which has an infinite amount and of US, US dollars. Because <laughs> he can issue them. That's right. But, right. Uh, okay, as far as Zimbabwe is concerned, when you talk about hyperinflations, the initial cause of hyperinflations, generally speaking, is not on the demand side of the economy. It's on the supply side. And in, in Zimbabwe, things moved along uh, adequately without them uh, really managing their economy all that effectively until the millennium, basically. Mm. And then Robert Mugabe, partly to try and stay in power a bit longer, took the decision to, in some ways a very understandable decision, to engage in a forcible land reform. Now, the land reform with force basically meant forcing off the land uh, almost exclusively, it was uh, it was white farmers who should have uh, been. Um, these land reforms should have taken place in a different way many years before. But he didn't replace them. He didn't give the land to the people who used to work. So he lost your, your effective private sector. He in gave the land, the land to the people who had been with him in the armed struggle. And those people, many of them, knew little or nothing about agriculture, had no interest in farming the land. What happened was that an almost entirely agricultural-based economy stopped growing food. And this is what you mean about supply side. Suddenly there's businesses doing nothing, there's nothing to sell. There's nothing to eat. And and the government just make money so people can still buy. And at the same time... 
Um, partly because of this and partly for other reasons. Zimbabwe was an economy which was under international sanctions, so there's no aid coming from anywhere like the US mm. either. So uh, it wasn't just agriculture, but it was agriculture that mattered. Production collapsed in Zimbabwe, so of course there's no food. What the government then did for uh, public employees and people associated with the government was basically they printed lots of money to pay for non-existent food. So like you said, it's a supply-side issue. They made money so people could buy imported things well, to make it, up, but there was nothing to balance There was the no imported things. Okay. They were under sanctions. There was no food coming in. Holy cow. There was nothing to buy. Okay. There was loads of money and nothing to nothing buy with to the buy. money. And so the value of the money was going down while the price of the goods Which were going, going up. up. Well, you know, if we've got one loaf of bread between us, uh, and we each want the loaf of bread, and we keep having twice as much money, everybody, to buy that one loaf of bread. It's just going to push the lo- price of the loaf of bread up. Yep. Yeah, until eventually we sever your head with the machete and just take it. That, yeah. that, that's right. And, yeah. and there is a similar the, story the system. to most hyper... Hyperinflation is a very rare event in that sense, yeah. historically. Okay. There's a similar story in the other one people give, although they generally locate it in the wrong decade, is Germany. People talk about Germany in the 1930s. Mm, the Actually, in the 1930s, uh, uh, there were falling wages and prices in, yeah. in Germany mm. when Hitler got elected. The hyperinflation was in 1922. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was before the crash, yeah. Yeah, and the hyperinflation in Germany, there are some complicated uh, issues there. Partly, there were some people within the German authorities after the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 who w- were interested in deliberately destroying the German economy in order to demonstrate that Germany could not make reparations for the next 60 years. So if we break it now, we can try and get out of the debt and then put it back together. But mostly it was the fact that Germany at the end of the First World War was on the brink of famine. Mm. The most productive region of the German economy was taken from Germany and given to France. So production in Germany collapsed. And then at the Treaty of Versailles, enormous compensation payments were placed on Germany and they basically they had to be paid in in gold and there were no reserves of gold in Germany. The only way to make the compensation payments was to print German marks and when people got those German marks, the only place you could spend those German marks was in the German economy and there was nothing to buy. So much like Zimbabwe again, you make money to try and buy expensive things, but there's no expensive things to buy. So the price goes up again, so you make more money That's until right. eventually the thing just spirals out of control. So the creation of that money is facilitating the inflation, mm. but it wasn't the initial cause. So that's something we need to sort of carry across here, that making money is a good thing, it's what governments should do, but there needs to be a balance between making money and the things that people then buy with it. So we And, and we reduce that to three principles when we talk about modern monetary theory. The first principle we say is that every economy and every society faces real constraints. And those real constraints are we have a limited supply of labour, limited supply of skills, limited supply of capital equipment and infrastructure and technology and natural resources. And in the long run, I mean, it exists all the time, but it becomes really binding in the long run, we have an ecological constraint that we mm-hmm. have to live with, live with it as well. So there are those real constraints there. Modern monetary theorists, and I am a modern monetary theorist, don't neglect inflation. What we do is we try to assess the government budget in terms of its implications for inflation. So there are real constraints. 
The second thing we say is that if you are a monetary sovereign government, like the Australian Commonwealth government, there are no purely financial constraints. Because you can make more dollars if you manage things carefully and don't kick off hyperinflation. Well, you create more dollars, remember, every Mm. single day. Mm. But you can make more and more if you want to, if you have a good reason to. That's right, absolutely. And the third principle, which is just a result from national income accounting, it's just an accounting result, is that uh, government surpluses are private sector deficits and government deficits are private sector surpluses. And that's so, just for balancing the books. Well, it's it's just a fact. I yeah. mean, it's just two plus two equals four, four. actually. Yep. If the, I mean, look at it like this. If there's a government surplus, they're taking more off you in taxation than the government's spending. Yep. So that's the government surplus. It's your deficit. Mm. If the government spends more than it taxes, it's the government's deficit and your surplus. surplus. Which to and, me sounds a healthier place to be because <laughs> then there's more people doing stuff with more money that's productive. And it, it, it's a fact that... For economies that don't run persistent, large, technically we should say current account, but let's say trade surpluses that are not selling loads of stuff to the rest of the world and not buying stuff from the rest of the world. For such economies, you cannot grow the economy for very long without the government running deficits. The reason being that if you try to do that, which is what the Howard government was doing, You just drive up the ratio of private debt to income and that creates a more fragile financial system. It's usually associated with bubbles in the property market or stock market. Which we had and we had a mining boom. So we had two ways in which money was being created, neither of them being the government creating it like they should have been. Yeah, although the the mining companies didn't borrow all that much. It was the households that were doing the borrowing. So what do you call it when you dig it out the ground and just sell it? Because that's not proper investment. That's just like, ta-da, we dug a hole. Uh, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's not investing in sustainable prosperity. No, because at the end you just get a deeper hole with nothing in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It may be classified in the national accounts as investment. But it's not. But the, the point that we make is that... When you are assessing the government budget, whether the fiscal deficit is high enough, whether it's too high, whether it's too low, or occasionally, and if you are a big net exporter like Norway, this may be appropriate, if, if, if the government surplus is too high or too low, you need always to think about those real resources. You need to think about whether you are fully employing uh, your available resources in an equitable way which is going to contribute towards the sustainable development of the economy or not. You need to think about whether any spending that you might be planning to do is likely to be inflationary or not. It's inflation, it's the real constraint which is the issue if you're the Commonwealth Government. It's not government solvency because the Australian Commonwealth Government under our current monetary system can never, ever under any circumstances, become bankrupt. They can spend too much and they can create inflation and we don't want them to do that. So before any spending plans that we might have, we would want to do our very best to forecast the likely consequences for inflation of those plans. They can spend not enough because they're practising austerity and they think they need to run surpluses for some weird reason because they don't understand the monetary system and because they've spent so many years talking about this, which, by the way, Robert Menzies understood perfectly well, although the monetary system was different then. He ran deficits all the time. Well, he was also the one that kind of kicked off 
the whole Australian ability to borrow enough money to buy that house yeah. and for suburbs to grow. So he understood you know, you had to have it growing and also whether he meant to or not underpinned the whole thing of debt becoming very normal for Australians. Well, although until the early 1990s there really wasn't very much of it. No, because Australian pay, households didn't have yeah, much debt. Because if you could pay the house off after yeah. that, that was the end of big debt. Whereas now yeah. the debt is just a constant state, it's a household debt. So at, at the moment, what the Australian government should be doing, and of course we have very many challenges, ecological and otherwise, what the Australian government should be doing is responsibly running fiscal deficits. The RBA has missed its inflation target almost all the time for the last six years on the low side. Mm. They've been desperately trying to create inflation. They can't do it. Because the government won't get on with spending money, which would have an impact on... Because both sides of politics have painted themselves into a corner where they have spent so many years talking about maxing out on a credit card or spending like a drunken sailor or comparing the government's finances to a household's finances, which is just childish. Yeah. Because it's just, it, it's complete. First of all, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect an understanding of our monetary system. And secondly, as I was saying, people like Robert Menzies would never have spoken like this. No, because he understood the thing about his job as a Prime Minister was to grow Australia and use every tool available to him there to achieve many, that positive course, outcome. There are many things from those days that we'd absolutely hate, the racism and all the rest of it in government. Mm. But in terms of macroeconomic policy, Anthony Albanese is far to the right of Robert Menzies. And that's far less sophisticated. Yeah, that's right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, assuming that he's, what he's saying is genuinely what he believes. I have to assume that that's the case, in which case he's not very well informed or, or, or advised. That's what we're saying uh, at the moment. Now, I've, I've spoken about this in Canberra in various places, some of which I'm not allowed to talk about. So I, c I can say there are plenty of people in the government economic service that Who would like to this. think about this, and they're yes. the people behind the scenes who try and explain to the dum-dums what to do. <laughs> But the politicians at the moment are not listening and most journalists, I mean, you just have to read the papers, don't understand this either. So problem that we have in Australia, we've had a particular discourse which has been going on for at least 30 years now and we really need our political leaders, some of them, to say, hang on a minute, actually we've, we've been wrong. Um, they're going to be forced to do it in a, in a year or a couple of yeah, years. There's not time. going to be any choice. One no. of the things I posted on the Blind Insights Facebook page the other day was a list of 25 indicators that suggest you know global economy not well. <laughs> and it was an interesting list because it was all sorts of things where historically when these things get to this point, things are bad. And it was just one after another after another. And we just seem to live in the delusion that because we dig holes and sell things that grow on sheep, that there will always be this ability to just keep trucking along. Absolutely. I, I don't use the word well or ill for the economy because it sort of feeds in to the uh, neoliberal view of the economy as though it's a great monster or a great creature that we all have to serve. So their view of economics is that there are people and there's, you know, there's the natural environment, the land and everything, and the job of the people and the natural environment is to serve this great God, the economy. And if we don't serve it properly, it'll get sick or it might die. No, it's the other way around. An economy is there to serve a society. And we don't seem to have... And we create the economy. Yeah. The economy is not a natural object. It's a, it's a human social 
object. It's the set of all those resources I was talking about before. But it's also the set of institutions and practices that we use in order to contribute towards human well-being today and in the future. And if we're going to contribute towards human well-being in the future, then we need to invest in and protect the ecosystem within which we live as well. And we can afford to do this. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's wrong, I might have mentioned before, it's wrong to think of the taxes of rich people like Gina Reinhart paying for it. That's not the way public finance works. We tax rich people like Gina Reinhart because they have too much control over real resources. Yep, and you need to get it back in the system. So could we say that Whitlam was the last Prime Minister that really understood this thing of using the economy to benefit society and that Australia's mindset was already changing and this is why he had such a short term? I think we can say that Gough Whitlam had all the right values but, again, not very good economic advice. And on top of that, he was a bit unlucky. Yeah, wrong time and wrong place. He was in the wrong time. He would have been better off back in the mid-1970s floating the Australian dollar. There would have been some short-term inflation to manage, but he wouldn't. nobody in the government would have had to go off and try and borrow foreign currency from some yeah. strange... So in a sense he needed to do what Hawke and Keating did earlier. He did, yeah. Hawke and Keating, that's a good thing Hawke and Keating did. Hawke yeah. and Keating did lots of things I disapprove of, including <laughs> the private superannuation system. Wow. Okay. Uh, which was completely unnecessary. Was it not private before that? Did they, did they not create that system? Well, they, they created a tax-advantaged compulsory mm-hmm. private superannuation system. Now, you could have a superannuation system where people ostensibly are saving towards their own retirement, mm-hmm. but you could have that run through the state, and they do that in places like Denmark and Holland. Mm-hmm. Our system is more than 10 times as expensive to administer as theirs with no discernible no, benefit. So it's like public well, health. Oh, but it, it's also the largest pool of money in, in the world, is it not? It's, it's effective in that sense. Uh, effective in what sense? Effective Pro- for there's who been or no what? there's been no acceleration in productivity in Australia since it came in. Okay. The job of looking after old people, we go back to those three principles again. Mm-hmm. The problem when it comes to provisioning for the elderly, of which I'm rapidly becoming one, <laughs> is not a lack of money. The government's not going to run out of money. It's a lack of real resources. I see. And to those provide people for to look after those people and resources to look uh, after. And, those and if the private superannuation system, which, by the way, the tax breaks on it, if you want to think of them costing anything, they cost more than the state pension does at the moment. Yeah, wow. so and that's ridiculous. how bizarre it is. But if yeah. you, if you, uh, so if that system contributes towards inequality in yeah. retirement, then actually it's going to create more spending power for people who already had plenty. Yeah. So you're and, putting and, money into. And if you're taxing mm. to limit inflation in the future, you could have to have more taxes because of that private superannuation system rather than less. Mm-hmm. Some of these things are the other way around to how people imagine them to be. But there is no particular reason why we could not have continued to have a state pension system with a decent state pension. That was effective and to would, manage and, and affordable many countries to do. manage. Many countries do. Our system in Australia, the way we do it, mm. is almost unique mm. around the world, which is why, of course, it is such a big pool of money because nobody else no has done one, it yeah. quite the same way we, we have, do. and they didn't need to, okay. and we didn't need to. Okay. It's very difficult to withdraw it now because, as psychologists talk about loss aversion, yeah. when people feel they possess something, 
you can't really take it back off them. But I have been talking to an economist called Cameron Murray, who is a co-author of a, a very good book called Game of Mates mm-hmm. about grey corruption in Australia, about over time returning people's compulsory superannuation payments to them in wages. Mm. Wage By means taxing them. Mm. Mm. But uh, at the moment, basically, it's a form of forced saving. Mm-hmm. But partly because of the game of mates and the influence the financial sector has in Australia, it's been set up to greatly expand our financial sector and the power of financial institutions and a lot of the, if you read Banking Bad by Adele Ferguson. Yeah, I was going to say Banking Bad and yeah. you know, what happened to the financial sector, just going, you keep giving us money and we keep getting dumber and more corrupt. Yes, they've persuaded us to create a system which many people imagine works in their interests. Actually, as, as a lot of younger people get to retirement age, they're going to find that that nest egg is not nearly as big a nest egg as, as they, they imagined it to be Jesus. anyway. So it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And, of course, you have a completely different frame of mind of thinking about it when you remember that the issue was not money in the first place. It was how are we going to look after the elderly? What are they going to consume? Uh, Are they going to be places for them to live? That sort of thing. It's not a guarantee. It's an accounting system. You actually want to guarantee yourself resources, which money doesn't necessarily do. Now we forget that money's not the resource. Money buys the resources. And and uh, it also affects the way we think about other people. Another thing that David Graeber put in his book was, uh, David was saying before, we have different types of relationships with other people. Mm. We have economic or competitive relationships. We have relationships which are like of sort of feudal relationships where we look down on people, but we think we have to look look after them. Uh, that is the way a lot of people on the left that I don't have much sympathy with often seem to think about First Nations. Mm. People, mm. they'll never be able to look after themselves. We have to take control. That's a terrible... Mm. Yeah, just empower people and let them look after themselves so they right. have pride and confidence. And there is the, there is the communal yeah. approach, which David Graeber provocatively calls baseline communism. Mm-hmm. I don't really like that term. No. I tend to... <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know what the right term... Cooperative relationship. Now, okay. when we have a state pension system... Mm-hmm. Um, it encourages us to think of other people in retirement on a sort of communal basis. We're all in this together. We're going to look after mm-hmm. each other. We'll look after the elderly. When you shift to a private super system, you're now in a system where, well, if you didn't say for your retirement, no, you break cooperation. And you, by you, breaking cooperation, you create social problems on top of the economic problems. And that's all part of the neoliberal narrative yeah. of the last yeah, of breaking 35 the years. And a lot of this... Not on purpose. They didn't do it on purpose. It's defensive in part because they'd gone through the Gough Whitlam 1970s experience. But a lot of this was created by the Hawke-Keating government. Mm. Yeah, It's not all John Howard. No, it was good. You know, in so many cases it was a combination of 1983 through to 2007 that they just kept doubling down on things within the neoliberal concept bundle until we got a totally dysfunctional system. Now, That's where Bernie's important. The... Triumph of neoliberalism started really, I think, had its inception in a way on September the 11th, but September the 11th, 1973, not 2001, with the revolution in Chile and the rollout of Milton Friedman-style monetarist economics, which was the economic foundation of neoliberalism in Chile. And it spread, that was like the first domino to fall. 
Mm. Now, if we are going to, if we're going to revert to the levels of inequality we had in the 1960s in places like Australia and full employment, uh, I mentioned Menzies before, he nearly lost the 1962 election because the official unemployment rate, when there was no underemployment, went above 2%. Mm. That was was seen. That was deemed as catastrophic. It was deemed at the time as catastrophic. And and the the appropriate figure to compare that to now is 13%. Which would be something more like the real figure now because of underemployment. That's right. Anyway, Mm. uh, if we're going to fight back, we need a big first domino to fall in the other direction and a potential big first domino. Because I I genuinely believe that over two terms, they could be transformative would be a Sanders-Warren presidency. Mm-hmm. It's important for me that in the first term, at least, the president is Bernie Sanders rather than Elizabeth Warren because she's moving in this direction. But Bernie's um, there she, and someone else would follow if he started. And there, yeah. is, there are his ideas. Most yeah. of her good ideas, basically, he's been pushing and everybody. Yeah. It's good that she's taken them. This is not mm. to be critical no. at all. Uh, and uh, uh, Bernie is influenced by modern monetary theorist economists and particularly his chief economic advisor who he appointed to be the chief economist on the Democrat side on the Senate Budget Committee mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., is Professor Stephanie Kelton, who is a movie star around the world. Interest in these ideas is spreading like wildfire. Mm. So she's travelling all over the world at the moment. She's One week she's in Tokyo, another week she's in London, and then she's in Madrid, and somehow, it's taken me a year to do it, but she's coming to Adelaide. Well done. In January, awesome. In January next year, at the beginning of the presidential election year, at wow. a time when in the Democrat, in the run-up to the Democrat primaries, it seems now, for a while it looked like Joe Biden was pulling ahead, but it seems that that's reversing itself. So Because he's Joe Boring. That's right. So at the moment, it's a sort of three-way tie. Warren, Sanders, Biden, everybody else. If you hear about uh, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, their support is within the margin of error of zero. Mm. So really, it's one of the three. Yeah. One of those three. Well, that's better than last time. So It, it, it has yeah. the potential to be very yeah. much better because yeah. I know some of their advisors and there is, I believe, genuinely the potential of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren combining. Mm-hmm. on a ticket, in which case I think there's a very good chance that they might get, in the teeth of opposition from the Democratic establishment, mm-hmm. they might get the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if they did that, they might win the presidential election. Awesome. And if they won the presidential election and Bernie was president, I think Stephanie would either be the Treasury Secretary or the Deputy Treasury Secretary. Mm-hmm. And the sort of ideas that we're pushing for, including a Green New Deal, which I haven't spoken about today, Bernie will make a JFK speech, you know, in 1961, we will go to the moon and we will do it in this decade. Bernie will stand up in Washington, D.C. and say, we will save the world and we will do it in this decade. And just like JFK didn't know all the answers in 1961, Bernie won't know all the answers. But he knows where to start. He knows where to start and he'll get the clever people together and he'll give them the resources and he'll share the technology. And for me, the best hope for avoiding ecological catastrophe apart from anything else in this world is a Bernie Sanders presidency. And when he does these things, including a job guarantee, and when they work in the US, we know how Australia works. Yeah, we'll follow. We'll follow. So what should we read that Stephanie's written before she's here in January so we can go along and listen to a lecture and be informed? 
Well, there are there are many things. Yeah, but where would you suggest starting? Could so people, uh, I know where suggest to start. listening to her. She's okay. a really great speaker. To so just do a, a big podcast and YouTube dump and just uh, absorb as many interviews as possible. She has done interviews. She's done presentations for obviously. If you're visually impaired, it's you can't follow the presentation, but she you can follow what she's saying. Mm. She's written a lot of journalism. She ha- is bringing out a book. Next June, which is going to be a bestseller, <laughs> yeah. but it's not it come out up. yet. Okay. If you want to, I mean, there is a book which I wrote called Economics for Sustainable Prosperity, which people can get hold of if they want, although uh, it's ridiculously overpriced by the publishers. I can't remember what the price is. But there is a free book too, which is by another of the founders of modern monetary theory called Warren Mosler who himself didn't start off as an academic economist. He was a fund manager and entrepreneur. But some of what I've been talking about really in the 1990s, Warren had the light bulb moments. So what's before. his book called? So you know, we can read his that book, before Stephanie's here. which you can Google uh, and find a free copy of, is called The Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy. Oh, but awesome just title. Google Warren Mosler, M-O-S-L-E-R. I hope he's not going to be coming in January, but I hope to be interviewing him during the conference and we'll have Stephanie here and we'll have lots of other people. It's going to be great to have her here. And as I was mentioning to you before we started the podcast, if there's any way I can do it, I'll bring Stephanie down here and you can have a chat to her. Ah, brilliant. Brilliant. And of course, we recommend our our listeners attend the conference if you want to tell us a little bit more about when that's on. Okay. uh, The conference is going to run over the Friday to Sunday period between the 10th and 12th of January next next year. It's going to be at the University of Adelaide. And if you want to find out about it, we have a conference website, which is www.mmt-adelaide-2020.com. Nice. Brilliant. And we can put that in the show notes. Or if people want to find out more about it or more about any of these ideas, please feel free to send me an email, Stephen with a V dot Hale, H-A-I-L at Adelaide dot E-D-U dot A-U. It's going completely crazy at the moment. So as well as my full-time teaching job, I'm doing things like this every single week right now. So it may be a day or two before I get back to you, but I promise I will get back to you. Well, we'd love to have you back, back on. Yeah, Stephen, you get no choice. You're getting mugged if you don't turn up. <laughs> oh, no, I'm happy to come here. But I mean, if, if, yeah. if anyone who's listening yep. wants to ask me anything, ask yep. away. But please understand if I don't Takes reply time. within yeah. an hour. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, and worst case scenario. Write to us and we'll forward it on. Yeah. The other thing we could do is do some kind of episode where we have the audio. If you want to ask us a question that we can then collect them all on together and, and, and go to. through the questions yeah. or something. Uh, that would be great. I, I, I do have another colleague I suggest... I suggest just on here that people might want to looking him up called uh, called Philip Lawn, mm-hmm. who is Australia's perhaps Australia's leading ecological economist, and something else you might want to ask about in the future. We perhaps need to stop obsessing about GDP, and we need to think about what is it really that's important to people. Mm-hmm. And Philip, at the moment, is developing on a comparable basis a statistic called the Genuine Progress Indicator. He's trying to do it for every country in the world. Wow. GPI depends on about 15 statistics. Some of them are economic, some of them are ecological, some of them are social. And the idea is going to be, and this is one of the things that we want him to do at the conference because we're aiming to get some big politicians there and their advisors, is don't target that, target this. 
And then when people say, oh, those statistics are a bit uh, dodgy or unreliable, we're going to be saying to the people from the ABS and other statistical agencies, well, collect better statistics then. Yeah. <laughs> Focus on what matters. Mm. That's what, what we're going to be doing in, in January, and I'd love to come back and talk to you before then. Lovely. Brilliant. Uh-huh. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks very much, David. Thanks, Tim. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Thank you.